Okay, so we are, <clears throat> we just finished up, we, we finished up most of 1 Samuel chapter 25. Let me just review that for a moment. This is where Abigail had come and appealed to David not to destroy her entire clan because David had gotten upset at her husband Nabal and um, uh, David took matters into his own hands and started speaking to himself about all that he was going to do to Nabal and his household. And it says, uh, now David said, and this is in, 5, 20, in 25 verse 21, now David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more so, if by morning I leave as much as one male <clears throat> of any who belong to him. So, he took matters into his own hands. He was going to go and kill an entire clan among the Jewish people. And that would have caused him real problems in life. Real problems. And so Abigail appealed to him. And, there, and uh, uh, the way Abigail appealed, it was interesting, we had looked at that, how she had called her own husband a fool in the midst of this. And then David really got <clears throat> attracted to her, had this quick marriage where he proposes to her. She gets married. She ends up having a miserable life. She, she has a son born named Cheliab, and Cheliab uh, means restraint of the father, which is a fine thing because the, David had, had restrained himself. But there really was no relationship there between the two of them. And her son was even bypassed in the lineage for, for the throne. When Amnon died, the second son in line should have been Cheliab, not even mentioned. And then the next is, is Absalom. And, and, uh, and then she changes Cheliab's name to the Lord is my judge. So, and she became one of six wives by the time they got to Hebron, and then one of many other wives, and there's not a, an affectionate word spoken uh, in the Bible between David and Abigail. She had no idea what it was going to be like to wander in the wilderness with David. She comes with five maids to take care of this rich woman in the wilderness. And remember, at this point, she has no riches. You say, well, she got the inheritance from Nabal when he died. No, women got zero, nothing, absolutely nothing. Never went to the wife. This is a new thing that, that, that wives can, can be in on the inheritance. Never was in that day and age. And so she came with, and David had to now take care of her and these five maidens, had no idea, you know, that this it was going to be quite this involved. So David goes from taking matters totally in his own hands, a very quick marriage that he decides, well, I'll just marry that pretty woman. She's intelligent, she's beautiful, I'll just marry her. And she sees this, this tall, handsome man, David, who's a great worry, and she just looks at him and marries him. And it's real problems. But then in, in chapter 26, there's a turn. What we see is that David now walks amazingly close to God in chapter 26. So from chapter 25, where he was taking matters into his own hands and moves into a marriage without any prayer, without any preparation, moves into a marriage to marry this widowed woman. And now he's moving into a time where he's really going to depend on God. So what happens in chapter 26 is, remember, he had spared, remember he had spared uh, Saul's life in the cave? Well, now he's going to spare Saul's life again. So Saul comes out after him again in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul now is camped there. And David is going to go 
into the midst of Saul's camp where Saul is sleeping and go and take his water jug and his spear. So in chapter 26, let's start picking it up from verse uh, verse 5. Then David arose and came to the place where Saul had camped, and David saw the place where Saul lay. And Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to David, Today your God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please, let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come when he dies, or he will go down in the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Okay, so David goes into the midst of the camp. This is, again, a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them so that even the sentries are asleep. This is again a judgment of God. David goes and he says, who will go with me? He appeals to, to uh, uh, Ahimelech, the Hittite. Remember, the Hittites were people that David fought against. However, there were expatriates that served in David's army. The Hittites were the ones to first develop chariots, really great men of war. Uh, uh, so so uh, Ahimelech was with him. And he also appealed to uh, Abishai, who was the son of Zeruiah. Zeruiah was David's sister. So Abishai is David's nephew. You say, well, then he should be just a little kid. No, David was the youngest uh, of all of the brothers in his family. We don't know where Zeruiah was in that order. But, you know, it's not uncommon in a large family for the youngest child to be not far in age from some of, the, some of uh, his nephews. And so and, uh, Abishai says, I'll go with you. And Abishai turns out to be a great warrior. He is the brother of Joab, Joab becoming general of David's army. So, so David's general, Joab, was uh, uh, also David's nephew. The two go down into the camp. A sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Abishai says, let me kill him. One stroke. And Abishai even takes the name of God. He says, the Lord God has delivered your enemy into your hand. You know, so what happens is we take something, we take a word, and we say, God must be saying this. In other words, uh, you know, we set something up, and we say, God must be saying this, so let's kill him. God must be, be doing this. Uh, I'll give you an example that, that has happened in my own life. One day, you know, I was wondering, this, is, this was very early on in college, and... and uh, uh, and I just come to the Lord, and I was wondering, well, is this such and such a girl, in, you know, the girl that God would have for me? And so I prayed that if God wanted it, that she would come and just 
happened to sit with me at the table in the cafeteria. Well, I was all the way across campus, and I went to her cafeteria, where she, you know, her dorm. So I set the thing up. Do you know what I mean? And so you can set this thing up in your life and think that God is saying something, but you're the one who set it up. Well, I'll just happen to go by her door, and if she opens the door, and I'll just happen to knock on her door. And if she opens the door, then I know that it's God's will. You, you see what I mean? So they set this thing up. They go into the camp, and, and, and we have a way of doing this sort of thing. So in other words, we have to watch out for this. And this is what Abishai is saying. He says, the Lord is saying, kill him. David's saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Don't do it. Don't strike him. And so David takes the water jug and the spear. They go back out across, uh, uh, to another hill. And they shout across and they start trying to wake them up. And so they wake them up and Abner, the general, Saul's general, wakes up and he, you know, he scolds Abner for not protecting the king. And then he, he starts speaking to Saul from the other hill. So this is, you know, it's pitch black at this point. Probably in the camp of Saul there's a fire, but they can't see anything out there. In verse 17, Then Saul recognizes David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. And he also said, Why then is my lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now, therefore, please let the Lord, the king, listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today, so that I would not have any attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to search for a single flea, just as one hunts for a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight. Behold, I have played the fool and have committed a serious error. And David replied, Behold the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and for his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refuse to stretch, stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so that may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. Then Saul said to David, Blessed are you, my son David. You will both accomplish much and surely prevail. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. So David goes ahead and he, he shouts out and Saul recognizes his voice and he says something really quite profound. He says, in verse, uh, he says in verse 19, If the Lord has stirred up you against me, let him accept an offering. In other words, if I have done some sin, that the Lord is now allowing this affliction to come on me. David is saying, if I've sinned, that the Lord is allowing this, let God accept an offering. So what David well understands is that when you blow it in life, you come before God, and our offering is to accept the work that Jesus has already done on the cross. We're not offering up animals. Jesus has already done this. But it's amazing how few believers really understand what you do when you blow it. You come before God and you accept the forgiveness that God has in Jesus Christ. You say, Father, forgive me. Father, I accept the gift that Jesus has made already in my life to die for me. I accept that sacrifice. Father, forgive me. David says, if I have sinned 
And as a result of that, God has stirred you up against me to come after me. Let God receive an offering. However, if it's men who have come against me, it's a different issue. God is the one who's going to protect me from them. That's what he's saying. David understands that you come before God for forgiveness for sins. This is something we need to do, to learn to come before God for the forgiveness of our sins. This is why, you know, when we take the Lord's Supper, I keep trying to, to, to uh, uh, put this before you. To be able to come before the Lord and say, Father, forgive me. I have blown it. Again, you would be amazed at how few believers really understand what it is to come before God and say, Father, forgive me, and then walk in that forgiveness. There's this feeling like, oh, I have done wrong, so now I have to do penance. For one week, I have to walk around miserable. You know, I'm just going to be miserable for one whole week, and then God will really forgive me because I've been miserable. No! That's not what it says. And in fact, you can beat your back with chains. And some people do that in some parts of the world. You know, they'll beat their backs with chains and feel that, oh, God has now forgiven me. That has nothing to do with it. It does no good when that happens. You know, you can beat your back with chains. It won't help. It will do nothing. There will be no help with that. And so, you, you, and, and the Bible even has passages that say, this is the outward appearance of things, but it has no effect against fleshly indulgence. Learning to come before God. And then the other thing that David does, remember, we had seen this before, David will never raise his hand against Saul, because David knows he's going to be coming into a kingdom. And if he raises his hand against Saul, the same thing will come against him. If he raises his hand against Saul, the same thing will come against him, because whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Because look what he says in verse 24. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. In other words, this is David's 401k program. This is his social security. As I have valued your life, May the Lord so value my life. This is what he's saying. In the same way that I have valued your life, may the Lord value my life. What's he saying? You reap what you sow. In the same way that I treat my boss and speak well of him or her, I will receive back the same way. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And David says, you know, as I have not touched you, may nobody touch me when I come into my kingdom. The man understood the retirement package. He understood how you get this. He understood sowing and reaping. You, at this stage in your life, you say, oh, well, I've already blown it. Trust me, you haven't blown it. It's, it's, it's not over. You walk in forgiveness. And from this day, you make a decision that I'm going to speak well of my boss. I'm going to speak well of authority over me. Why? Because I want people to speak well of me. You know, sometimes I, I counsel men, and, and I'm not a great counselor, but sometimes I get thrust into this position, and I just, you know, I, I shoot from the hip, and I do as well as I can. And men will say, you know, my, my wife doesn't listen to me, my kids don't listen to me, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, that's obvious. I knew they wouldn't listen to you. I could tell that they wouldn't listen to you even before you told me that. And they're like, how do you know that? I said, because you have no authority in your life. You have no authority to whom you come and to whom you submit. There's no authority. You don't consider the church your authority. You just come and show up to church. 
You don't even know who the pastor is. And they don't know you. There is no submission to authority in your life. And so when a man himself is not under submission to authority, then everybody under him, because there's this umbrella of authority, and when I step out from this, then everybody under me is no longer under my authority. They just start rebelling against this whole thing. It is very simple prescribed pattern in the Scriptures. You know, when we function under authority, good things happen. People begin to listen to us. There's a relationship that goes on. And these things happen in, in your campus group, you know, whether it's agape or intervarsity. There are leaders there to whom you show an attitude of submission. This happens in the body of Christ. The things that, that, that students often lose is they get tied in with these parachurch organizations, which are terrific. I love them. I got saved through a parachurch organization. However, there is very little understanding of the body of Christ sometimes, and so that when they get out of school, they say, where's Agape? I don't know what to do anymore. Oh, it's called the church. It's called Sunday morning and relating and then getting involved in the activities of the church and learning to function under submission. Just in this past, past month, I've been on the phone several times with the leadership of the church trying to understand how we're going to change the program, how we're going to change the times in the class, and it's clear, whatever they ask me to do, I'm going to do. No, Now, if something doesn't make quite a lot of sense, I'll express my views. But ultimately, I am under their authority. And if I start coming out from that, I know what will happen. I mean, my home will start to fall apart. My work will start to fall apart. This is the pattern. David understands this pattern. So here David goes from chapter 25, where he totally takes things into his own hands. Then he goes into chapter 26, which is covered with understanding of God and walking with God. And then let's look at the beginning of chapter 27. Verse 1. Now David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for, for me any more in all the territories of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and he crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Ashish, the king of Maok, the king of Gath. And David lived with Ashish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelite, and Abigail the Carmelite, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Okay, so now we have chapter 27. Again, no prayer. David, it says in chapter 27, then David said to himself, now I will perish one day. The best thing I can do is just flee to Gath. Remember he was in Gath one time before he fled to Ashish and he had to feign madness? He had to feign madness in order to spare his own life because the people started looking at him and saying, aren't you the one that killed Goliath? Aren't you the one that, you know, they sang, David killed his, Saul killed his thousands and David his ten thousands? Aren't you the one who goes out and just kills a few hundred Philistines for a dowry? You know, isn't that you? And David says, you know, uh-oh, and he, he starts feigning madness and he gets out of there. He's gone back. He's gone back with his 600 men. He's gone back there. This is the same guy he's gone back to. You'd think that David would have learned that this is not really the safe haven that you think it is. But again, he takes matters into his own hands. He goes, and he goes back there. And when I read this, it's like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The guy goes from, from total himself wanting to kill an entire clan of Israel and 
you know, taking a, a, a woman just because she was intelligent and beautiful, knowing nothing about her, knowing nothing of the maintenance of her and her five main, maidens. And then he goes into this chapter which is totally covered with God, where he, he brings in the name of God into his life. And then he goes into chapter 27, and he starts speaking to himself. I get into so much trouble by speaking to myself. By just reasoning within myself as to what I ought to do to get out of a situation. This often happens to me. I don't know how it happens to you. But it often happens to me at, at my keyboard. As I'm about to write a sharp email. You know, you know I'm thinking to myself, I've got to do this. I'm going to do this. You know, I'm just beating on this keyboard. You know, and this pen, there's no God in this. I'm not praying. And, and, you know, I'm just speaking to myself and, you know, saying, I'm going to kill an entire clan today. You know, <laughs> far be it from me. If, you know, and, and I'm just doing this. And then I hit the return button. I feel really good. Then about six hours, I feel really bad about this thing. My life is this. My life is, is I, I'm, I can be really nice to people. Really nice to people. But there are moments where I'm not nice to people. And my life is picking up after all the problems that happened because of the few nanoseconds of not niceness in my life. You know, where I'm going up and calling up people and saying, I'm sorry, you know, I really shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have said that. This is how I can relate to this man, David. This man, David, he goes this series of nothing of the Lord, totally of the Lord, to nothing of the Lord. Every time it's nothing of the Lord, he's speaking to himself, there's no prayer, there's no pulling out verses. Here he's quoting scripture in verse 26, you know, talking about how the Lord will do this, the Lord will do that. And I'm telling you, in, verse 20, in chapter 25 and in chapter 27, he's not writing any psalms. You know, there's no psalm writing in this time. You know, the guy is just, just totally into himself. And this is how we get so... If you ever get like this, don't get so down on yourself that you think you cannot recover. David was able to recover. But this is typical human life. This is typical life of David. You know, everything is controlled by God, praising God. Everything is God, planning for the future and just turning it over to the Lord and trusting God. And doing great exploit for the Lord, where you, you will fearlessly go into the camp of Saul. I mean, just... Utter bravery for him to do that. Even Ahimelech, the great warrior, was like, uh, you want me to go with you into the camp? Uh, how about we just stay up on this hill and we shoot some arrows down at them? I mean, what are you talking about? He said, no, it'll be fun. Let's just go steal his spear in his water bottle. And let's just try this thing. This amazing bravery in a Bishag who's, you know, really quite young. You know, young people have this... You know, they'll, they'll climb the side of a mountain. They do jump out of airplanes. They do crazy things. As you get older, you stop doing that. You think, what am I doing? Why am I climbing? Why am I here on the side of this mountain? And you don't do it ever again. Uh, but when you're young, you don't think about it. So Bishag, yeah, that sounds good. Let's give it a try. And Bishag gets o- over there, and he's like, let me just kill him while we're here. You go from, from, from you know, just tremendous courage in the Lord to a point where... He's turning back. And so what is the Philistines? Why would he want to go to the Philistines? Remember, David was able to beat up the Philistines so bad. And then he goes to them. He thinks, he says, it says, he said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape. I mean, so he's speaking to himself. 
And he's saying, I'm going to perish. You know, you start thinking about this. How many years have I walked with God? You know, so I've walked with God for over 30 years. And then how can I one morning start sitting and thinking to myself, it's a disaster. You know, things are just falling apart around God hasn't brought me this far to just say, drop me and just say, go ahead. I just want to see you do this all by yourself. But God doesn't do that. But I get into all these messes. This is exactly what David was doing. He just started going through this in his mind. Yeah, Saul is going to kill me. What do you mean he's going to kill you? Every time he's come out to get you, his life has been given into your hand. But in spite of all the past, in spite of all the successes, we have a way of rationalizing in our own mind what we have to do. And we forget the past and all of the good things that God has done. And we slip back into the world. This is the world for David. David goes back to Philistia. So he goes back to Gath, this city, and he brings with him now his 600 men and his two wives and all the children and everybody. So he subjects them all to this. You know, for all they know, the world is going to kill them. I have seen believers say, it's just too hard to be a Christian. When I was in the world, it was much easier. Well, I'm not sure you remember what the world was like, you know, when you start thinking that way. You know, well, you know, this didn't happen and that didn't happen when I was... Well, other things happened when you were in the world. Remember the way people used to laugh at you? Do you remember the things that people would say when you you'd just hang out with people of the world? Do you remember the motivation of people in the world? How they wanted to use you? How they wanted to, you know, just have a relationship with you so they could sleep with you and then go on to the next person? you remember what the world was like? You sure you want to be back in that? You sure you want to go back to the world? You know, the world is a very tough taskmaster. And believers get this mindset, well, you know, they look really happy. Well, they're not. You know, I've seen, I've seen women who are in marriages that aren't the greatest marriages, but they're hanging on and saying, well, you know, this woman, friend of mine, you know, she's divorced and she's very happy. I said, well, I bet she's not. I bet she's not that happy. I bet if you could get into her mind, you'd see that she really wished she'd held on to her marriage. But she's really not that happy. You know, that, that there are these ways that you could pick up on the world. And God had called for His people to be separate from the world. And He made this very clear, very clear in the Scriptures. He said He called out Israel. He wanted them to be separate from the idol worshippers. Because He didn't want their children to learn their ways. He didn't want them to learn the ways of these idol worshippers. And here he goes into Gath, where they have this, this, the, the, these gods, Dagon, for example. They didn't have the God of Israel. And David moves back into this. He says, what are you doing, David? How could you have this lapse of faith? Well, David was just a regular guy like the rest of us. And there are moments where we have lapses of faith, and we start thinking to ourselves, I've got to do this, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do this. This is what I've got to do. And there's nothing wrong with thinking as long as we're pulling the Word of God into this. What does the Word of God say about this? What do the Scriptures say about my going back into the world, my going and having this relationship? A lot of times you'll see this in women, Christian women in their late 20s. In their late 20s, they don't have any guy. Because, because you know, good guys in the church are slim pickings. I mean, they get, you know, they get married up quick, and a lot of times there's a lot of really great women and not enough great guys. And in the late 20s, they start thinking, 
you know, I'm never going to find a wife. I'm sorry, the woman's thinking, I'm never going to find a husband. (laughs) Never going to be able to find a husband. Just never going to... And they start opening themselves up to relationships with unbelieving men. And they'll just say, well, he's a nice guy. He's a good guy. Uh, Yeah, he's not a Christian, but he's going to become one because he's interested. He's interested in the Lord. And he goes to church with me. And he said, well, I'll bet he'll stop going to church with you as soon as you get married. Well, how do I know? Because I've seen it many, many times. Then they stop going to church with you. When they, when they get married, they stop going to church. So these sort of things happen. You know, you get these sort of relationships happen, and, and uh, uh, they stop going. And then it's miserable. And that's why I always say, you know, the, the first step is, is this person a believer? It doesn't get better by going into the world. And the lives of these women, when they get married to the unbelieving guys, it doesn't get better. In fact, the guy readily stops going to church. I mean, I've seen this in people that I love. I've seen this in in, in relatives of mine have married believers. And I talk to the believing women. I say, how can you marry this person? He is not a believer. And, And she and her mother said to me, well, we love him for what he is, not for what he isn't. Wow, that sounds really spiritual. <laughs> and, but he's an unbeliever. And then I even went and I spoke to the pastor of the church in the church where they were going to get married because it was the, uh, it was the uh, rehearsal dinner. So I'm sitting at the dinner with the pastor and his wife. And I said, how can you marry these two? Because this guy's not a believer and this woman's a believer. I mean, the last resort is you appeal to the pastor. You know, this is what the Word of God says. And the pastor's wife just pounced on me. I mean, I didn't even ask her. I asked the pastor. But the pastor's wife, she just pounced. And, uh, uh, you know, just beat me up. And, 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 then, and, then the, and then the pastor said, well, you know, I think they're going to get married anyway. So we want to keep them in the church. And I could understand his rationale. You know, at, at, least, at least he could engage with me and give me some reason, albeit disobedient to Scripture. You know, the woman just just lunged at me. So anyway, you know, this was in my own family. Well, the guy starts stops going to church with this girl. You know, all through the court, courting period and engagement, he was going every Sunday. Well, within six weeks, he stopped going. And he never went back, and he became really resentful of the church. And, you know, the woman didn't turn out to be perfect because nobody's perfect. So he's blaming it on the church. You know, because you're always fishing for something. So, it doesn't get better. But I want you to remember, if you ever have these periods that you go into, where you feel like, you know, I was just so on fire for God a month ago. And now I'm like, I hardly even believe. This is natural. This happens to very good people. But don't slip into going back to Gath. Don't think that that's your solution. You press on with the Lord and times will change. To have these seasons where you're really excited about God and other times you're like, do I even know God? Does God know me? Does God even exist? This is all natural. You know how I know? Because I go through it myself. I do. You say, oh, you don't. I do. I really do. 
You know, all these thoughts come into my mind. And I'm going to press on with the Lord. And I take the Word of God and I put this truth in my life day after day. And as I look back over these past 30 years, I look at the difference between what I have got and what others have lost because they have not put these patterns in their lives. There is no comparison between our lives. I have it so much better than them. These truths reign. These will happen. These will take place. God has good for you. He has the very best for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the grace of God and for your mercies. Lord, I thank you that you show us that whether we have highs or lows, that you are there. Father, I thank you that it is not unnatural and we are not alone in this. Father, I pray for these young people that you would so get a hold of their hearts that they wouldn't thrust themselves back into Gath, back to the Philistines, back into the world, thinking that there is a safe haven. Father, I pray that you'd keep them ever in your presence. And even in these times where they, where they just lose it and drift, Father, I pray that you remain ever so close to them so that they would come back quickly and see that the goodness of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord prevails. Father, your mercies and your grace be there in their lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.